Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, of all the people that we meet in the story of Christ's passion, who is it that you identify with least? Chances are it's the chief priests and elders, the members of the Sanhedrin who put Jesus on trial and convicted him of telling the truth about who he was. They're obviously the greatest villains in the story, and even someone who doesn't love or believe in Jesus is not going to be inclined to say, yeah, yeah, those guys are just like me. But perhaps we should rethink that a bit, because we have something very much in common with Christ's enemies that is... Well, it's it's more than is apparent at first, and that is faithlessness. That's not to say that we are all unbelievers in some way or anything like that. It is to say that like them, we, far too often, fail to follow through on what we have been trusted to do. These men of the Sanhedrin that we find putting Jesus on trial in the middle of the night were, were supposed to be the religious leaders of God's people. They were supposed to represent the Lord to them and act in every way with the spiritual welfare of their fellow Jews in mind. Now, two members of that body, the Sanhedrin, were faithful. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. But for some odd reason, those two had apparently not been summoned to this irregular meeting of the council of priests and elders. We really don't have to wonder why. Those that were there, the rest, proved themselves faithless. The first and greatest way was in their refusing to consider and believe the evidence that was before them, years' worth of evidence, the evidence of who Jesus really was. But even if we ignore that, they still show themselves to be unfaithful with everything that they do in connection with this trial. They were supposed to be men who sought and promoted truth and justice among the people. This was a role that the Romans had allowed them, as well as manage the spiritual affairs of the nation. They botched it all. Because they valued the power and prestige and privilege that they enjoyed, and they resented everything that Jesus represented, they let their personal priorities overtake their judgment, and they ended up not interested in properly carrying out the duties entrusted to them. Not just by the Romans, not just by the, their fellow Jews, but by God himself. And we are like them. When far too often we turn our backs on the Lord and choose what we want for ourselves instead of what the Lord has laid out for us to do and to be. Maybe you're a husband who has decided that loving his wife as Christ loved the church is not something that you're interested in. 
Or maybe you're a wife who has decided that honoring your husband as the church honors Christ who died for it is just just not in line with your opinion of how your marriage should be. Perhaps you're an employee whose approach to your job is to do as little of it as you can. Something that in order to work from home is really encouraging. Or perhaps you're the kind of student known as an underachiever. You're fully capable of learning the material and doing the work, but you you just don't feel like it. Whatever your various callings in life might be, whenever you choose not to do what has been entrusted to you to do, you are as faithless as these priests and elders gathered to condemn Jesus were. It is wrong, and it is sin, which makes the faithlessness that Peter showed at the very same time Jesus was dealing with that of the Sanhedrin, well, it makes it almost ironic. Remember that he was the one who had insisted strongly that even if all of the other disciples were to desert Jesus, he, Peter, the rock, the best example of devotion the world would ever know, he never would. And all that was asked of him as a disciple and a follower of Jesus, even just as a friend of Jesus, was to stay true to him. He wasn't being asked to go into battle with sword drawn. wasn't being asked to, to uh, complete some great quest. He wasn't being asked even to accomplish some tedious task. All he had been entrusted with was his identity as a representative of Jesus. And that suddenly presented a conflict with his fleshly instinct for self-preservation when someone said, hey, I know who you are. You're one of them, aren't you? Peter didn't like discomfort or danger, and so he lied. Lied with an oath about who he was and whom he belonged to. He failed the simplest test of all because he was afraid of what might happen to him if the truth were known. When the rubber met the road, what was found in Peter's heart, just as is found so often in our own hearts, was faithlessness, not fidelity. And when the rooster crowed, and Peter realized what he had done. He went out and wept bitterly. His heart was then filled with shame and sorrow. He was not ready in that moment to appreciate it, but later he would, to appreciate that what was found in Christ's heart while all of this was happening was the exact opposite of the disciples' wishy-washiness about his identity but also exactly what was needed. Jesus knew who he was, and he did not let danger, let alone discomfort, keep him from affirming it. He had confidence, and that confidence kept him on his path to the cross to save sinners like you, me, and 
Peter. We see this clearly as he stands on trial before the Sanhedrin. His enemies are pulling out all the stops, trying to find a justification for having him put to death. And false witness after false witness offers lie after lie as evidence against him. He responds to none of it. He is not worried about how these untruths will hurt his reputation. He is not afraid of the consequences if they say something that sticks. Jesus knows why he is there, knows who he is, and knows what will happen to him. He knows how it all ends. And so when the high priest finally just puts him under oath and asks him straight out if he is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus has no reason to to dodge or lie or hesitate or even to continue in silence. He says with absolute confidence, it is as you have said. But I tell you, soon you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Of course, his enemies pounced on this. They saw it as their their long-desired, hard-won victory. They finally had what they needed to convict him. They condemned him with what came straight from his own mouth. But of course, being faithless, they missed entirely the irony that they were condemning him to death for the blasphemy of telling the truth about who he was. And, of course, they were completely wrong about this being their victory. Instead, Jesus was warning them that that this, this was the moment that they would one day recognize as their eternal undoing when they saw him truly as he was or rather when they would see him truly as he was, returning to judge the earth on the last day, well, then they would know how grievous an error they had made, but it would be far, far too late to do anything about it. But the fact that Jesus could make such a brave assertion about the distant day of judgment showed the confidence that he had not only in his identity as the Son of God and Son of Man, but his confidence also that he would complete the work that he had come to earth to do. He was not at all uncertain about what came next. He knew that the Sanhedrin would convict him, send him to the Romans for execution, and then he would suffer and die, and on the third day rise again. His total giving of himself his life and his blood for us sinners, would fulfill his mission. The human Son of God would die as payment for all the world's sins, and the divine Son of Man's sacrifice would therefore count for all people. The decision of this kangaroo court was a step further toward victory for our Savior. And so we, we can be confident too. 
That is another of the amazing blessings of grace that come from Christ's heart meeting ours. On the cross, he satisfied God's wrath against every sin, which means that there is now forgiveness, full and free, for all our faithlessness. The shame and sorrow we feel over our failures to live the lives that we have been called to is washed away with the blood of Jesus, washed away along with all our guilt, and we can be sure that all is right now between us and God, that heaven is ours and that that Satan, the grave, and hell are no longer anything for us to fear. We can be absolutely certain. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author of our faith and the one who brings it to its goal. We know who he is. We know what he did. We know where he is and where he belongs. And we can rely on it. In view of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of God's throne. This confidence brought to our hearts, direct from our Savior's heart, makes a difference in exactly the way we need it to. Working through the gospel, the Holy Spirit makes us faithful where once we were faithless. He guides and enables us to be and to do all of the things that he has called us to be and to do. Of course, our flesh will still put up a fight, but we can be confident of how it all turns out. Jesus has shown us how the story ends, and it's all good for us, his people. And we thank and praise him forever. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.